Good morning, church. I'm going to do uh, this morning's scripture reading, which is uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm reading from the ESV. The day of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So, let, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Allow me to pray for us, and then we will get into the Word. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're just honored, blessed, delighted to be able to gather together and to worship you, to be able to study your Word. And so week by week, Lord, it's always my prayer that you would help us in our weakness, help us, Lord, in our limitations, in our human capacities and faculties, Lord, I mean, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, for your word is living, it's powerful, it is a discerner of hearts, it instructs us of the way of salvation and how to walk with you, how to know you, I pray that you would elevate our affections today for Christ, for your word, for each other, and that we would exalt you that, Lord, we would, we would keep you in your rightful place. You are Lord, your God, your Savior, you are King, and you are worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of our service, and worthy of our obedience. And so, Father, we give you our hearts. 
We give you our lives, and we ask now that you would please meet with us as we look to your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, today we move into the fifth chapter of the book of James, and this is, according to some, possibly one of the most difficult chapters in the book. As noted many times before, the theme of this book is to be a doer of the Word, to be a doer of the Word. And so there are deep truths in here to be sure, but at the same time, it's just so practical and simple, and I've heard it referred to as just low-hanging fruit. You don't have to climb the tree to get the fruit. It's just right there. It's good for the getting. And so people love the book of James for that reason. James goes so far as to say, regarding the issue of being a doer of the Word, that if we have faith, but we don't have any actions to accompany it, well, that's no saving faith at all. That if we really do believe the things that we claim that we believe, if we really are in Christ, if we really are a new creation in Him, well, that changes everything. It changes the way we think. It changes the way that we live. It changes our devotion, our affections, our goals, it changes everything. And so it's obvious, it's evident that a person has been changed from the inside out. And that's really the idea of the book of James. And he's already talked about so many practical issues in the church. How do we deal with trials when they come into our lives? Do we pray ourselves out from underneath them or do we persevere through them and allow God to work in us in the midst of it? Our speech, do we have God-glorifying speech, or does our speech tear people down? On and on the list goes of the very practical things that James deals with. Well, now James is going to be talking about perseverance again. That's the thing about the book of James. He kind of revisits topics. He comes back to them again and again and again. Now, the challenge with that is that it seems like so often the book of James are just a bunch of disjointed topics that are kind of chaotically woven together. So he's here, then he's there, and these two things don't seem to connect at all, and then he's back over here again, and it's like, what is going on? Now, some of that is just characteristic of the, the writing you would expect in that day and age. It's not super linear necessarily, but I would argue that these things do flow together and connect more than we might realize. And therein lies the challenge for the teacher and for the reader, is trying to understand how do these things connect contextually, because they are quite a bit more cohesive than we might realize. And that's my goal, that's my desire or hope today as we look at these 11 verses, that we will be able to see how these things flow together. Now, today in this chapter, James is going to begin by addressing wealthy people who are abusing and oppressing their laborers. James confronts these oppressors, he acknowledges the oppressed, and he emphasizes God's perspective on the matter, how God hears and sees and deals with them both. And so, At first, you might think, well, I'm not an oppressor, and I'm not oppressed, so I don't see how this is going to have anything to do with me. Well, just stick with me, because I assure you this will be very practical, and it will be quite relevant. You know, we're all probably oppressed more than we realize. I got oppressed just this morning. I had to stop at the grocery store to get some things for the cookout. I'm in line. This guy's behind me. I thought, I'm just going to go to the checkout, self-checkout. I take two steps 
and realize it's closed, and I turn around, and the guy jumped in front of me. And I thought, well, surely he's going to know that, you know, I, he should let me back. Do you think he let me back in my spot? No, he didn't. No, he did not. And I was helpless. I wanted to just fight back. I just wanted to kick his cart over. But you know what? At the end of the day, I stepped out of line. And so it is what it is. But I'm just simply saying, well, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. But as I said, we're going to see just how practical and relevant this message is. So with that, let's go ahead and move into our text. Now, I'm just going to read the first six verses to us because it's, I mean, there's just a lot going on, and it's, it's going to be easier for us to read these six verses and then just kind of pick it apart instead of moving verse by verse through this. But this, as I said, is really a, a severe warning to wealthy oppressors. Severe, a severe warning for healthy oppressors. That would be kind of how I would summarize this first section of Scripture if you're taking notes. And so look with me at verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's, that's a heavy, intense little portion of Scripture there. And we will do our best to unpack this. So he says, come now, you rich. Who is James talking to? Now, even this phrase, come now, it's kind of like this jolting, listen here, pay attention. Come now, you rich. Well, in this day and age, especially, there were really these two main demographics that you would so often be dealing with. You had landowners and you had land workers. And you were going to fall into one of those classes typically. And as you would imagine, there will be far more land workers than landowners. And so you would have those who are very wealthy and those who are very poor. You have the poor who were very desperate and dependent upon the work that they would get from the landowners. And the way that the landowner cared for or took care of the land worker was so crucial. It was so important for the livelihood, for the good of the land workers. And so James here is addressing corrupt landowners who were abusing their workers. They, were, they had no regard for humanity, no concern or care for the people that worked for them. They were abusing them. They were oppressing them. Now, there's some debate as to whether James is talking about Christian landowners or not, because he does not refer to them as brothers, as he often does in this book. And he doesn't encourage them to repent or to turn. Instead, he, he basically just announces judgment on them. Weep and howl. 
shriek. That's the idea for the miseries that are coming upon you. And so it doesn't sound like he's talking to Christians here. And some would say, well, if he's not, why is he even writing this? Because this is going to be read in the church and amongst the Christians. And I would say, I would, it seems to me that he's not addressing Christians, but he's addressing the issue that the Christians are going through. And so he's essentially, with very graphic language, depicting a scenario that he knows many of the believers in the church are experiencing And he's basically letting them know that there is a harsh and severe judgment that is going to come upon the people that are doing this to them. And so even though he's not necessarily probably talking directly to the people that are doing this, he's addressing the issue in a very vivid way to the people who are suffering under these circumstances. Does that make sense? I suppose in the end it doesn't necessarily matter. The truth is the truth. Uh, but I, I do think that makes most sense to me as far as we consider who, who were the recipients of this and who is it exactly James was talking about. We certainly know who it applies to, generally speaking. Now, let me say this. The Bible is certainly not against people having wealth. So it's not like, come now, you rich people, you're going to be judged for being wealthy. That is not at all what he is saying here. Wealth is a gift from God. Every good thing that we enjoy is a gift from God. Amen? Even the air that we breathe, everything that we enjoy, every good gift comes from Him, not least of which, wealth, riches. And Paul addresses this very thing in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. They're to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And so Paul says, look, it's a blessing from God to have wealth, but it's important that those who have wealth don't trust their wealth, but trust God. And it's important that they take their God-given wealth and that they use it so as to be rich in good works, and that instead of amassing treasure on earth, they would be using their treasure for God's purposes so that they can amass heavenly treasure. So that's the biblical, that's the biblical framework for wealth. It's neutral. Wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing. You've probably heard that money is the root of all evil, right? Well, that's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So lusting for money, being greedy for money, loving money, a sacrificial love even, that is bad. And that, that it tends to bring about all kinds of evils. But that's not what... Uh, You know, money in general is not the issue. The issue that James is dealing with is how this person got their wealth and how they used their wealth, okay? And so I think now we begin to kind of, it begins to hit us maybe a little more as we hear that phrase, how did they get their wealth and how did they use their wealth? Now, let me just say this. 
we are all wealthy people. You may not know that. You may not be feeling that way. And I will say, it's hard to make it in Napa. It just is. It's hard to make it in the Bay Area. Um, it's hard to make ends meet. But compared to much of the world, man, we are living like kings and queens. I mean, we are doing quite well. And uh, so it's important for us not to think, yeah, those rich people over there, those wealthy people over there, and somehow this doesn't apply to us. We need to recognize that in a lot of ways, we would be the rich person that the Bible des describes. We are not in abject poverty. We are not stuck in some class system where we are hopelessly and helplessly stuck in this situation for generation after generation. We certainly have more than we need, and our garbage disposals eat better than much of the world. And so we do quite well. Well, how does James describe these people in uh, chapter 5 here regarding their wealth, how they got their wealth and the sinfulness in their wealth and what they do with their wealth. Well, if you look at verse 4, he says that these are wages that were kept back by fraud. So they got these wages fraudulently. They put people to work and then they didn't pay people. Now, have you ever worked and not gotten paid I have had that happen. It's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling. I think a lot of us probably know what it is to get, you know, ripped off. Now, I've, I've been ripped off in other situations in my BC days, and that's a different story, and that, that's, you know, that didn't feel good either. <laughs> so, hey, we know what it is. Um, but it's a terrible feeling, and this is exactly what people were doing. And it says in verse 5, that they're living in luxury and in self-indulgence. So while they are abusing and oppressing these laborers, they're taking what should have been given to the laborers and living in luxury on it and self-indulgence. So the idea there is they, they just they have so much. They're not giving what they should be giving, and they're living like kings as a result of that, while others are suffering without unjustly. In verse 3, it says that they have stored up treasure in the last days. Now, that's a, that's a phrase that sometimes you'll hear and think, yeah, like storing up treasure in heaven, like what Jesus said, but that's not what he's saying. What he's essentially saying is you're hoarding. They're hoarding. While others have nothing, while you're withholding that which rightly belongs to somebody else, you are hoarding it. You are living in self-indulgence. You are living in luxury. And then notice in verse 2, it says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. So the idea here is that they have so much that they're not using what they have, and it's actually being destroyed as a result. And so to say your riches have rotted, again, agriculture, being in an agrarian society, they would grow wheat, for instance, and then store it up store up the wheat, build bigger barns and store up. And that was wealth so often. It would be clothing, it would be livestock, it would be grain, it would be the fruits of the ground. That was riches. That was treasure, if you will. And it says here that their riches have rotted. So they have so much that they have stored up and is not being used, it's actually going bad. And their garments are moth-eaten. 
That's another thing you'll often hear in the Bible. Someone gave someone a very lavish gift. They gave them many changes of clothes, garments. And, and the idea here, again, is you have people who are without, people who have no clothes, people who have no food, but you have so much clothes that it's actually been eaten by moths. You have so much food that it has actually uh, begun to rot. It's rotted. And then it says your gold and your silver have corroded. Now, that's a little confusing because gold and silver they may get tarnished, but they don't necessarily corrode. And I think that's not the point here. We don't need to take that too literally. I just think that this is in keeping with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this comes from the Sermon on the Mount, and as I mentioned in the beginning of this book, James refers to the Sermon on the Mount some 20 times. And so, that's what we have here. So, the point is, is this is how Jesus said we ought to live. We're not to live for money. Instead, we're to take the money that God has given us and use it for His glory and store up for ourselves treasures in heaven that will not rot, will not corrode, where the thieves cannot break in and steal. But then you have these wealthy landowners who are doing the exact opposite of that, and they are living in luxury off of the oppressed. Living in luxury off of the oppressed. Now, let me just stop right here and say this. Again, most of us in here are probably not in this situation. Maybe there are. Maybe there are some amongst us that are, and God knows. And so, uh, God, I'm sure, will be doing business with you through His Word. But as far as I know, that's not the case. But let me just say this. We oftentimes think that we would not do something like this if we were in that situation, but we don't know. We don't know what our hearts are capable of. But I think there are little telltale signs that would give us some indication. What do we do with that which God has given us? Do we have any concern for the suffering or the needs of those who are without? Are we caring for those who are starving and who are suffering? Or are we just spending it on ourselves and building up our own little kingdoms and living in luxury and self-indulgence? something that we have to consider because if we are, if we're not considering the needs, if we're not using our money for God's glory and for God's works, and we are living in self-indulgence, and we are storing up, and we are having uh, excess, then maybe we would be this person if we were in that situation. That's just it. You don't know. We don't know, but I do know this. The heart is corrupt. It's sick, the Bible says. We're easily deceived into somehow thinking that we're better than we are. And, but for the grace of God, there we would be. And so we have to humble ourselves and recognize this is, could just as easily be talking about us. So we have to guard our own hearts. Amen? We have to guard our own hearts against these same propensities. These same propensities. We might not be oppressing the afflicted, but are we caring for them? Are we showing any concern or regard for them? Are we taking the good things that God has allowed us to enjoy and using them for His glory and for the care of others?
Well, notice in verse 4, this is where God really comes into the picture here. Verse 4, it says that the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So the pain and the suffering of the afflicted does not go unseen by God. God sees. God sees the oppressor, and He hates it. God sees the suffering of the afflicted, and it grieves Him. It says that the the cries of the harvesters have reached His ears. This reminds me of Genesis 16. Many of us in here maybe were familiar with the story of Hagar. Uh, Abraham was the, the, the father of faith. God said that through him, the nations of the world were going to be blessed. The problem is he didn't have any kids. He didn't have any offspring. So he was promised that even in his old age, there would be a miraculous birth, essentially, between him and Sarai, and there would be this child of promise. Well, many years went by, and it still hadn't happened, and they were only getting older. And so Sarai comes up with this plan. She's going to have her maidservant, Hagar, essentially be the, the surrogate. Is that the right word? Sometimes I'll try to use words, and I get myself in trouble. Anyways, she would be the one, essentially, uh, Abram would impregnate uh, Hagar, and that would be the adopted child, if, if you will. Well, it worked, and then it was very obvious that it wasn't Abraham who, was, uh, who couldn't have children ultimately. It really was Sarah, Sarai, and so she became very bitter and angry, and she began to be very harsh towards Hagar, very harsh. And so Hagar ran away. She ran out into the wilderness, essentially, to die. And we're told that the angel of the Lord came to her and comforted her and let her know that this child was going to be a mighty child and he was going to have a very bright future, if you will. He would really rise to power. But he notes that God has heard and seen. He has has heard her affliction. So that kind of speaks to the issue of pouring out our hearts in anguish. God hears that. When, when you cry out in anguish, God hears that. God is aware. God is listening. God is concerned. Amen? And that is a wonderful reality for the child of God. God hears. And God sees. God is not blind. God doesn't have His head turned, as it were. God sees. And that is what Hagar says in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. This is the only person that, as far as I know, that gave a name to God like this, bestowed a name upon God based on the circumstances. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. You are a God who sees. So sometimes you might hear one of the names of God, Elroy, Elroy, Jehovah Elroy, that means the God who sees. And the idea is, is that God sees. God looks upon our affliction, but He doesn't just see it, He responds. Because that's the thing. To say that God sees it automatically assumes that God's going to do something about it. God is going to respond. So God sees the affliction of His people. God sees the oppression of 
that is happening to them. And the Bible is so clear about this. God's heart is for the sojourner. God's heart is for the refugee. God's heart is for the orphan. God's heart is for the widow. God's heart is for the oppressed. God sees. God cares. And James uses the term, the Lord of hosts. He says that the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, some translations say Sabaoth, uh, S-A-B-A-O-T-H. And that would be um, the transliteration from the Hebrew of that word, which is rendered Lord of hosts. It actually means God of the armies or God of the angelic armies is what that means. And it is the most commonly used term of God in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, that designation. Uh, it describes Him as a mighty God, a warrior God, a God who leads legions of angelic armies. And so that's what James is appealing to, that God. That God hears, that God sees, and that God will judge. And so that's what James is appealing to. He is a warrior God who fights for those who cannot fight for themselves. Amen? And I think about even the gospel. God has, God has fought for us. We couldn't fight for ourselves. We could not deliver ourselves from so great an enemy, sin and Satan. We were surely doomed. And the Lord of hosts, the God of angelic armor, uh, armies, our conqueror, our champion, did for us what we could not do for ourselves in overcoming sin and the grave by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, His one and only perfect Son, to live a perfectly obedient life that all of us have failed to live a thousand times over. And this victorious Son of God, Jesus Christ, died a gruesome, horrible sinner's death that we all deserved he alone did not deserve that, but He went to the cross willingly in love and obedience to the Father, and He died there on the cross for our sin. And then He rose again from the grave three days later as a conquering king. And that is how God won the victory. That is how God, the Lord of hosts, won the battle for us. The war that was waging and raging for our souls, the Lord of hosts won with a mighty right hand and an outstretched arm, He conquered sin, Satan, death, and the grave on our behalf so that we would no longer be estranged from God, so that we would no longer be orphans, so that we would no longer be strangers as it were. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. He is a mighty, conquering God. Amen. He is the Lord of hosts. He saw the oppression. He saw that we were oppressed. We were under a harsh bondage and taskmaster. Sin, Satan, and death. And He judged that on the cross. He judged His Son in our stead, and we were set free. Amen. Hallelujah. That's the God that James is appealing to because He sees and he acts. He sees and he hears and he responds. Well, now with that, let's look at the second part of our text. This is the strong encouragement for the oppressed. So, he's dealt with the issue of the wicked oppressors. 
And he has spoken to the fact that God sees that, and God will judge that. God will judge that. They're being judged even now, and there will come a time when they will be absolutely judged. Because James said that even these things that you have amassed for yourself will testify against you. The, the corrosion which eats your riches will eat your flesh like fire, he said. Remember that? Just a few verses earlier. And so God is a God who will judge. Knowing that, we want to escape that judgment. We do that through Jesus Christ. And God is a God who is on our side and gives us strong encouragement in this life. So we saw a severe warning for the wealthy oppressors. Now we see a strong encouragement for the oppressed. And James is going to use a few examples here, a few illustrations, if you will. He's going to talk about the patient farmer and the precious fruit. He's going to talk about the prophets of the Lord as an example of patience. And then he's going to talk about Job, the king of patience, if you will. And so we're going to look at this, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, as I said, it would be very easy to just look at verses 1 through 6 and think that's an isolated deal there, but I think it really flows right into this. Now, James is dealing more specifically with the Christians in this situation, and what is the solution? Be patient. Be patient. I don't like that solution. I don't like it at all. It's like, no, God, judge these people or do something, you know, like, I don't want to just be patient, you know, but that's, that's what James says. Now, this word patient here, uh, in James chapter 1, he says, let patience have its perfect work, right? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And that word patience is the Greek word hupomone, which means to bear up underneath this weight, this crushing weight, and let this weight strengthen you, as it were. Let it build resolve within you. Let it build endurance in you. So basically, this trial, this affliction is going to accomplish something in you. That's why James says, let it have its perfect work, that you may be complete, lacking nothing, right? Well, here it's a different Greek word, the word patient, and it's macrothumia. And those are two different words. Thumia is the word that we would get thermometer from, and it speaks of uh, temper, temperature. And macro is the idea versus micro, large, big, right? And so the idea is to be long-tempered, long-tempered, not short-tempered, not just volatile and explosive, but to be able to really be patient for the long haul, to endure, to withstand. Not so much because of what is going to be done in us, though absolutely God is going to do something in us, but because of something that's coming. That's the idea here. There is something that is coming that should encourage us to resolve, to withstand, to be long-tempered, to be patient. 
Notice that he says brothers, which in the plural, it's Adelphoi, and it's brothers and sisters. Uh, and so it's the church collectively. So now he is talking to Christians for sure. And so we note that. And James is appealing to them based on the return of the Lord. Based on the fact that the Lord is going to return. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Now this ties back to God being the judge and dealing with the oppressors. God is a judge. God is going to judge the people who are in this wickedness. It's not our place to judge. We don't need to worry about that. But we're going to stand before the Lord, and the Lord is going to return just as surely as He will return to judge the wicked. He is going to return for His people too. So we need to be patient, and we need to trust God in that. God is going to make all things right in His time. Amen? Now, also, I just want to point out, he's still using this language of agriculture. The farmer waits for the precious fruit with great patience. So, again, we're still in the same context here. So, just little Bible study clues I want us not to miss at first glance. James is essentially saying that you of all people understand how this works. You're land workers. You get this. You have to be patient when you work the ground. You have to be patient. Right now, it's grueling. You labor until the time of harvest, but it will be worth it. And really, it is an act of faith, farming, if you will. There's no guarantee, especially in this day and age, they didn't have, you know, they really de depended on the rain for God to send the rain for the increase. Uh, and so they didn't have drip systems and all those kinds of things in place. They didn't have so much of what we have in modern day uh, caring for, uh, I don't, I'm a preacher, man. I'm, I'm not a farmer, okay? Whatever, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. Uh, and so they didn't have that. So it really was faith. It really was faith, trusting God. And so he says, you get this, guys. You already know. It's, it's right there in the very work that you do. You work hard. You work by faith. You trust that God's going to provide, but you also know that it takes time. Fruit comes in its season. You don't plant one day and expect to harvest the next day. And it's hard work. Hard work not necessarily even knowing what the outcome is going to be. And so he says, for you, though, you do know what the outcome is going to be because the Lord's return is at hand. And he is faithful, and he is a, a judge who sees all things, the oppressed, the oppressor, and he will act. And so he says, be patient like the farmer. Keep your hands to the plow, trusting that God will take care of you. Right now we may suffer, but in due time God is coming with his reward. Amen? So James says, establish your hearts, for the Lord's coming is at hand. And so, establish. It means to fix or to ground something so that it will stand firm. I mean, I put a basketball goal up at a, at a, a house years ago I had, one of those big old gorilla goals. I mean, those things are huge. And so, of course, I had to dig out the ground, and I had to pour cement, and I had to fix this post in there. That way, when I was balling and dunking and all of that, right? Obviously, you know I'm lying about that, but... Uh, it will stand. It's been fixed. It's firm. It's planted. We have to do that with our hearts regarding the Lord's return. God could come back today. He could come back a long time from now. But whether He comes back or we're standing in His presence, God will make all things right. There's going to come a day when God is going to set all things right. 
He's going to judge every wrongdoing. And we need to just fix our hearts firm in the fact that God is in control. God sees. God cares. God is able to act. God is able to judge. It's not our place. So we just stay faithful. We fix our hearts on something that's so much higher, something that's otherworldly, something that's so much bigger than where we are currently. We set our minds and our hearts on things above for a heavenly reward. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in Colossians 3, verse 1, when he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. That's, that's a done deal. We are in Christ. Just as we have died with Christ and have been risen again into the newness of life with Christ, even still we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. And when He returns, we will be like Him. We will see Him in His glory. He will come with His reward. And then it's all over. All of this struggling, all of this toil, all of the affliction, all of the trials, all of the injustice, all of that's over. All of that's over. And this, is, this life is like a, a mist, it's like a vapor, it's here, and then it vanishes. And so we are those who live in a different plane, if you will. We live with a heavenly perspective. We are those who are like the patient farmers who are trusting God to bring the fruit in its season. Amen? Now look at verse 9. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So again, it's, this could be like, what, what is this? All of a sudden, it seems like we're taking a very sharp departure from what James has been saying. And as I, as I understand this, it, it seems to me like what he's saying is, sometimes when we are undergoing difficulty, when life is hard, when we are suffering under intense difficulty, what is it that we do? We lash out. We turn on who? Each other. All of a sudden, we start treating each other like we're enemies, and we forget that we're on the same team, and we do have a common enemy, and it's not each other. So when we are under extreme difficulty, we trust God, we look to God, and we encourage one another. We don't turn on each other and start biting and attacking and having all kinds of internal conflict and strife. See, that's just it. The enemy is an expert at getting in our heads and turning us against each other. This is probably one of the scariest things for me as a pastor because I have seen it happen so many times. Guys, I'm telling you, get, someone gets a thought in their head and it is absolutely not true. It is absolutely not true. It comes from the pit of hell, but it doesn't matter. The person turns away. They walk out. Somehow they get to thinking some crazy thing about someone else or about the pastor, and they leave. And the enemy got them. The enemy got them. And that's what happens so often. We, we go crazy in our minds. We, run, we let these kinds of things go rampant in our heads. And we can begin to attack others or think we're being attacked by others. 
when instead we're supposed to be here to encourage one another, to bear up underneath the weight of this world. We're supposed to be supporting one another, not attacking one another, right? And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting, the, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So look, let us collectively cling to the confession of our hope. We believe in Jesus Christ and we trust in Him. We need to cling to that collectively because God is faithful. Then what's He say? Let us consider how we can be stirring one another up for love and good works. How can we build each other up? How can we provoke each other to love and good works, essentially? Not tear each other down, not divide, not grumble and complain, not judge one another, but realizing that the day is drawing near, as it says there in Hebrews 10, which is exactly what James was saying. There is a judge, and he's at the door. It's God. It ain't us. So it's not our place to attack and judge each other. We love and encourage and build one another up because there is a judge, and he's at hand. Amen? Well, look with me at verse 10. So that was the patience of the farmer, now the patience of the prophets of the Lord. It says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, the Old Testament prophets were notorious for suffering difficulty in their service to God. They suffered horrendously. Hebrews chapter 11 even describes someone being sawn in half with a saw. And, you know, well, I won't get into all that, but some believe that it's actually Isaiah, that Isaiah was sawn in half under which king? It was the son of Hezekiah. Someone help me out. Manasseh. Manasseh. He was one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel. He repented and became a very godly king, but before that, they believe he was the one who had Isaiah sawn in half. Uh, these prophets were called to difficult places, to people who absolutely would not hear them, and they were even told that at times. You're going to go to this people, they are not going to listen to you, and they're going to abuse you. They suffered often, they suffered horrifically in their service to God, and there was no reward for them here on this earth. There was no reward for them here on this earth. Now, undoubtedly, I'm sure, speculating here, some of them probably wondered, why such hardship? I am serving you, God. I'm serving you. I'm going where you told me to go. I'm saying what you told me to say. I'm doing what you told me to do. And all of this, see, they had true patience, true faith. They persevered. They realized that there was no heavenly reward, but we know, excuse me, no earthly reward, but they were looking for a heavenly reward. And that's really the point of Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. They weren't living, they were pilgrims down here. They were sojourners. This was not their home, and they knew it. And they were looking for a heavenly reward. So we consider the patience of the prophets. None of us have been sawn in half yet, as far as I can tell in this room. We all appear to be intact. 
And so I think we've gone through some difficulties, but we haven't suffered like that. So we've got a great example of people who trusted the Lord despite the most difficult of conflicts, and they patiently persevered. They patiently persevered. And then lastly, verse 11, the patience of Job. The patience of Job and the purposes of the Lord. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, we look in awe at people who stay the course in the most extreme situations, don't we? That's what he says here. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. We hear stories about people who died for their faith, and we think, that's amazing. And we often think, God, would I be willing to do that? And I think a lot of us probably are willing, will will probably in humility say, I don't know. And I would just say that if we it would be only by the grace of God that any of us would be willing to do such a thing. But God is gracious, full of mercy. But we look at that in awe. Man, those people gave everything. Those people went to the very end. So we look at people who really bear up underneath the, the greatest difficulties and stand. We admire that. We respect that. And for good reason. Well, then he says, look at Job then. Consider the steadfastness of Job, the resolve of Job. Of course, most of us in here probably know the story of Job. Now, Job was a, was a godly man like no other, and he was just minding his own business. You know, he was sacrificing to the Lord, living a good, godly, prosperous life, and then Satan, we're told, comes in, and God says, you know, what are you, what are you doing, Satan? And he says, oh, you know, I'm just going about to and fro through the earth. And then God says, have you considered my servant Job? And I'm like, what's up with that, God? He's just minding his business, serving the Lord. And he's like, hey, Satan, have you noticed this guy over here? He's pretty, he's, he's kind of the man, isn't he? And Satan's like, oh, yeah, okay. He's, obviously, he only serves you because he's blessed. He was like, let me take away everything he has, and then we'll see who, uh, if he worships you and serves you. And of course, we know the story. God gave Satan the ability to attack him and to take away everything and to inflict him uh, with great suffering and to kill his family even, but he could not take Job's life. Now, Job didn't know any of this was going on. He's oblivious to this. He has no idea that Satan and God had this conversation and that God was like, man, there's no one like Job. And Satan's like, oh yeah, well, I'll show you. And then there's like this epic showdown. Well, he doesn't know any of this. All he knows is that everything's been destroyed. His family is gone, except his wife. And she told him that he should just curse God and die. And he's covered in boils and blisters and his friends come to console him, but essentially all, all they're doing is like, you must have done something wrong, Job. You've done something wrong. You need to repent. And Job is like, I have not. He insisted that he had not done anything wrong and that he wanted to essentially plead his case before God that he was a righteous man. Now, in so many, in so many ways, Job, Job withstood. He did not curse God. He did at the same time, however, really stand upon this, I'm righteous, I've done nothing wrong, and this is unjust. Okay, so it wasn't perfect. 
Um, but all I know is, is that, I mean, gosh, I consider the silly things that make me want to just like bounce, right? That we, we all experience and we're, we're singing like the temptations. I mean, we're ready to, to get out and go. You look at what Job went through and how he never cursed God. And God was so merciful and gracious to reveal himself to Job, to put Job's mind in the right perspective, and then to add back to Job's life far beyond anything Job ever had in the first place, right? But Job was patient because as far as he knew, he hadn't done anything to bring any of this on himself, yet here it is. And so James appeals to Job and says, have we look at Job and we stand in awe of his endurance, his perseverance, his patience. We've got to do the same. We've got to do the same. Job could still say, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. That's an amazing verse. Though he slay me, still I will trust in him. And of course, we'll close here. Consider Christ. Consider Christ as the greatest demonstration of patience that this world has ever known or seen because of a, a greater perspective of what was really going on and what did hang in the balance. In Hebrews chapter 11, in the hall of faith, it says this, picking up in the latter part of verse 35, some were tortured. This is referring to God's people in the Old Testament. They were refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something far better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So you have these people who were living for this promise of God and suffering tremendously here on this earth. There was a promise that had been given, but they would never experience that blessing on this earth. We're the recipients of the blessing, ultimately. But they would one day in heaven. And then that takes us into chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we recognize all that had just been described for us, all of these godly men and women who suffered so horrifically in faith for God, following Him here on this earth as sojourners, in light of all of that, let us lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So there it is. We consider all of these things as an encouragement to us to persevere by faith. We consider the farmer. We consider the prophets. We consider Job. But ultimately, consider Christ. Christ, who 
suffered in ways that we'll never know. In an eternity of eternities, we will never fully understand or grasp the suffering that He underwent for us. So look to Jesus. Look to Him who is the author and perfecter of our faith as we cast off everything that holds us back from running the race, as we turn from every sin, as we endure and persevere in this life looking for a heavenly reward, recognizing that there is a God and He does see, He does act, He does care. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Well, let us endure, brothers and sisters. Let us persevere. Let us press on. For God is good. He sees us, and He's for us, and He's with us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we love You. Thank You that You are a God who sees. Thank You that You are with us indeed. Thank You that You have heard the cry of our heart. You have looked upon our affliction, and You have saved our souls. You have set us free to recognize or realize that you rejoice over us as a father is amazing. Thank you, God. Thank you that you rejoice over us even now. Thank you that we are in Christ, that we are alive forevermore. Thank you that we have all that we need to persevere. Thank you that we have all that we need for life and godliness through our relationship with you and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So that's my prayer for all of us. Life is hard. It is difficult. Things will never be the way that they should be here on this earth. Help us, God, by your grace to persevere. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, just as you, Jesus, kept your eyes fixed on the goal, God's glory, the joy that was set before you, an innumerable multitude of redeemed saints who would be saved by your sacrifice. Jesus, you looked to something greater. Help us to follow your example and to look to something greater as we persevere through this life. Help us to live in the reality that, God, you see us, God, you hear us, and that, God, you're with us and you're for us. Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that it's evident that we're for you, that we are for you, God, and that our lives are given to you. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May he lift up your countenance and give you peace. May he give you all that you need this week to persevere for his glory and in his name. God bless you all. See you next week.